you know, how long does it take people to, like if a plane was, you know, the engine, engines all shut down and you got a group of people in the plane, you know, who'd never jump out of a plane with a parachute, it would take them two minutes to put a chute on and jump out. I think the, the stronger connection we make to what drives people to do something different, then I think the quicker the change can occur. And, and I'm a strong believer, an advocate, that the only difference between those who change quickly is just the level of inspiration versus those who don't change quickly. I, I have this philosophy that I'm really pushing with my kids and, you know, and, and they're pretty much on board with it. It's that, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you learn concept. And, you know, the moment people realise that you're either winning or learning, suddenly, you know, there's no failure occurring. You know, the doorways and the pathways open to many things. Today, I speak to George Lee Sai, who is an author, educator and coach. George has taught personal organization, performance improvement, change leadership, Lean Six Sigma and business execution concepts directly to more than 100,000 leaders in some of the largest and most significant corporations in the world today. He founded Soar and Vision in 2000 and has continually run that company as managing director. He founded the AOBIL Professional Learning Hub in 2016, taking on the role of lead trainer. Since 2002, he's written 16 books including two editions of an 840-page monster tech book, which has been a benchmark in the business improvement industry. George is also an avid motorcycle enthusiast with the ultimate part-time job as an on-track ride coach with California Superbike School. Have you ever gone through change in your personal life or at work and thought to yourself, there must be a better way to do this? Welcome to On Change, the podcast that explores change that works and the people who make it happen. And now from Solid Gold Studios, here's your host, Pietro Dupisani. Good morning from Solid Gold Studios. George Lisa is joining us today from Adelaide on Skype. Welcome to the podcast, George. Uh, thank you very much, Petro. It's great to be here. You are a world leader in business improvement. Um, for those of our listeners who don't know exactly what business improvement is, could you just give a brief overview of what it is and what drew you to this profession? Yeah, I, world leader, that's probably a big call, so I better uh, step up to the plate now. <laughs> but, um, the, the concept of business improvement, uh, I, I think just the concept of improving things has always been something that I'm drawn to. A anybody who's ever you know, achieved any success in business or career has always been someone who's chased improvement of some kind because I think that's the fundamental, fundamental backdrop to the experience they present to other people. But um, business improvement in a technical sense, I think, you know, is just the, the process of improving things that add value to the business at, you know, whatever metrics important to that business. And did you start off in business improvement? Was that your first job? No, no. I, I've been working for 44 years and, uh, you know, obviously left school fairly young. 
but I think probably about 40 years ago, you know, I kind of got an interest in, you know, making things better and, you know, and just have always been driven down that path. So I started, you know, my life as a tradesman and um, it just evolved eventually into, you know, some sort of formal relationship with business improvement, you know, as an initiative in an organisation when I work with BHP. So no, no, it wasn't originally, even though it was a passion, it uh, became formal about 20 years ago. This podcast is specifically about change. Um, so it's got everything to do with change. So I know you're also very passionate right. about change and change management and how we get change to stick. So where do you think is the intersection between business improvement and change management? I think it's, this this might not um, you know be the same view that every that that a lot of uh, business improvement professionals would have, but I think change, organisational change, is the overarching methodology because that's what we're doing. And business improvement, you know, is a big topic within that where we're focused on specific things that improve processes or um, you know parts of the business that we're already working on. To me, change is the overarching concept and business improvement is a, for, is a piece of it. You know, strategy improvement, strategy development is another part of that as well. So I think it's a subset, you know, of um, the organizational change concept, but a huge part of the role of a business improvement practitioner. Yeah, I think so too. I think if you want to introduce change into an environment, business improvement is one of those changes. So you're introducing a right. new way of measuring, you're introducing a new way of improving and continuously improving, which means that people have to accept that change. So you have to take them along. So have to use your traditional change management tools to make sure that people actually accept all of these new ways of, of improving and make it part of the culture of the organization, I guess. Uh, when, yeah. I, when I learned business improvement, I actually used your handbook, Process Mastery with Lean Six Sigma as my handbook for understanding yep. and implementing business improvement. So what was really nice about this book was how practical it was to use. It's a real like how-to for business improvement. It's not all of the theory. It's actually how to apply the theory, which is, which is really cool. So what I wanted to ask you is, I mean, how important is taking people along when using a structured BI techniques? Look, I think that's probably the key part of it that is more important. If, we, if we're comparing soft skills or the change component with the technical aspects, I think anyone involved in business improvement has to recognise that getting people to buy into ideas is more important than coming up with an idea that they believe is the best one. You know, and there's that common belief that, you know, better to have a solution that everyone's bought into than the perfect solution, because it's the one that will probably stick and make, you know, the difference. And if, it, if it's not necessarily that good, they will improve it over time. So as far as I'm concerned, buy-in is more important than me perceiving the technical solution to be correct. Yeah, I think so. If, if, if people are more willing to use solution that is good, but everybody accepts it, it's better than having an excellent solution that only one person understands and, and can implement. 100%. There's there, a, lot of, a lot of leaders get frustrated because, you know, they've gone to university and they've developed skills over time. They've been told to bring solutions, not problems. So they get caught in the trap of being focused on the solution and trying to implement their idea, where the modern leader today, the one who's more generic, the one who's able to move sideways is the one who realises that their job is to focus people on the gap and let them solve it, you know, but be very good questioners about 
the process that they use to solve it so that, you know, bad solutions don't slip through the cracks. And, and this is, this is a, uh, I did a bit of a poll because I'm also working in business improvement, as you know. So I did a bit of a poll yeah. around my colleagues yesterday around if I had an expert in business improvement to interview, what would be the one question that they would like to ask this person? And mm-hmm. the question is all around, so we have all of these wonderful business improvement tools and techniques. We have a whole tool set for change management and templates and all sorts of things that we can do. So we've got all of the tools. And um, that's not yes. the problem. It's, so how, what, what do we need to do to make all of our changes stick? So how do we create this self-improving business? Because and as you say, you've been working in the industry for 43 years and still, there's still so much scope to teach people all of these business improvement yeah. and change management tools. So what keeps you going for 40 years doing this, trying to get people to understand <laughs> these tools and, and use them? So how do we make it all stick? I think, look, if, if I look back, you know, 20 years ago when I started to get involved in, you know, some formal improvement methodology that had tools, so let's say Lean and Six Sigma, there, there was a real heavy focus on the toolkit and that's a trap. People get caught in that, you know, that frame of mind where they think the tool does the job and it would be kind of like a motor mechanic, you know, looks at the toolkit and says that 14 mil ring spanner is what fixes the car. But then over time, they realize that it's the practitioner that's got to create the change. And they just draw upon a tool to help them either come up with a good technical solution or get people to buy into stuff. I think the problem is there's too much reliance on tools. And in addition to that, people are very formal, particularly, you know, formal about their, the way they approach it, particularly in the, uh, you know, the corporate environment where my knowledge of people today is that if you can connect with people's values, specifically, and I'm not talking shareholder value and things like that. I'm talking about, you know, you want to go home and, and be with your family and, and, you know, you want to see your kids again safely tomorrow or you want more time so you can go fishing or whatever it might be. If you can connect to those values properly, you can get chains to stick. But too many people are too formal in making that connection to people's values and they don't want to talk openly and softly and, you know, and like I said, really connect with people. And I think that's, you know, one of the major challenges, particularly in a corporate environment. Yeah, it's almost as if people think you're two different people. There's one person that shows up at work in the corporate environment and then there's another person who's at home doing all of the things that are important to them. And it's two different people and it's not. It's two, it's yeah. the same person who shows up, shows up at work and if we can sell concepts in a way that appeals to the full person, then they might buy into the change and, and our tools better. A hundred percent. And the entrepreneurs of the world and the, you know, individuals who do very well out there on their own, they understand that because if they don't make that connection, they go hungry. But in the corporate world, there's, there's the danger that if they miss that connection, then they fall back to formal authority. And it's almost like a bit of a cop-out. You know what I mean? They don't make the connection, so they'll use the make the wheels of the structure to be able to get the change to to you know be implemented. You've been working business improvement for many years, as you've said, over forty years. So, what have been the main changes that you've seen in this field, and what do you see? What changes do you see coming, and what do you think really still needs to change in this field? Yeah, the, there's that's they're good questions. Those I let me see if I can answer it this way. The change, the most change I've seen is the way I view things. You know, with it obviously because we operate our own business and we're somewhat 
you know, insulated from the rest of the industry per se, you know, like other consultants or trainers or whatever. The, the biggest change for me personally has been that shift away from being, you know, a, what, what's the word, maybe, you know, even zealot-like with a methodology and becoming more focused on what really it is we're here, here to do, and that's to solve a problem. The moment people make that shift to we're here to solve problems as rapidly and as quickly as we can and only use those tools and methods that help us solve that problem, I think people get results much quicker. So if you go back 20 years, and Harry, you know, who you know um, um, that I'd work with on the book and, and uh, have done for over 20 years, we were both exposed to that idea that a project or a piece of work would take 16 weeks or something. Today we're doing projects and, you know, organisational change around business improvement in two weeks because we've shifted from the toolkit to what our real role is and that's to solve a problem rather than implement a toolkit, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I would like to know how you effect organisational change in two weeks. <laughs> tell, tell me more about that. <laughs> I think, let me, let me if, I, if I explained it relating to a project, like our, I probably should have said our projects take two weeks to get to the implementation planning point as opposed to 16 weeks, if that okay. makes sense. Okay, yes, that makes <clears> sense. <throat> so the, you, you've shortened the planning yeah. cycle. Okay, that makes sense because uh, yeah. it, it takes, uh, takes more than two weeks for people to want to do something differently. Well, sometimes it depends. See, like this is, you know, how long does it take people to, like if a plane was, you know, the engine, engine's all shut down, and you've got a group of people in the plane, you know, who'd never jump out of a plane with a parachute, it would take them two minutes to put a chute on and jump out. I think the, the stronger connection we make to what drives people to do something different, then I think the quicker the change can occur. And, and I'm a strong believer, an advocate, that the only difference between those who change quickly is just the level of inspiration versus those who don't change quickly. A lot of people, you know, everyone goes home every night and changes. They change their clothes. They change their appearance. So we're not averse to change. We're just averse to change that's been imposed on us or makes us feel uncomfortable and we have choice about whether or not we go through that discomfort. Oh, I think I, I can agree with that answer. Okay, I'm going to take a break from our formal questioning and I'm going to ask you a couple of rapid-fire questions just so our audience can get to know you better. So don't think too much about it. When I ask you a okay. question, just whatever is the first answer that comes into your head, you can just say that. No worries. Okay, so it's time for our rapid-fire round. What is in your pocket right now except for your phone? Uh, my wallet. What book would you recommend to anyone's read? My new book. It's called The Master Presenter. Uh, no, uh, uh, good book. I think, um, oh, what's his name? Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell Blink. What is at the top of your bucket list? It would be to probably visit, in, um, what do you call it, um, in Chile. The No, I've lost my... Patagonia. Um, no, no. Um, what's the... <laughs> Machu Picchu, oh, but that's in Peru. Machu Picchu, that's, <laughs> that's it. That's the one. What do you spend a silly amount of money on? Most motorbikes. <laughs> okay, well, on that topic, then Harley or Superbike? Superbike. Straight road or windy road? Windy. <laughs> <laughs> where's your favorite place to go on holiday? Where would you, if you could go anywhere in the, in the world, where would you go? I like Canada and New Zealand. I find them very similar. Tea or coffee? Tea. Dogs or cats? Dogs. So that's the end of our rapid yep. fire round. 
You have written a whole number of books. You've written two yeah. books on how to use your brain better, how to take control of your yeah. brain and the problem-solving brain. So there, there's much research stating that how you think about things influences your ability to solve problems and deal with yes. issues. So what got you interested in thinking patterns and self-mastery and those type of topics? This goes back to another career I had. I I spent a number of years working in a special operations group where we would be asked to recover hostages or deal with events involving firearms or explosives and, you know, high-risk scenarios. And we were involved in a job, and in the job, one of the team members inadvertently fired their gun and the bullet passed between the team members. And this is when we were making entry into a building. And it got me thinking that there was a big difference between the way people performed in operations and the way that they performed in training. So I wanted to know primarily what were the, you know, what was creating that difference. And it just led me down a path of, you know, studying, uh, you know, a whole bunch of things, um, neurology, uh, neurolinguistic programming way back in the early days of it. I started to do a degree in psychology. I pulled out of that because it kind of, you know, frustrated me a little bit the way they were headed, but. It just opened up a whole bunch of stuff around, you know, thinking, human thinking, self-awareness and its effect on performance. So that's kind of what initiated it, Petro. The one, the one on, like, I originally wrote that book, How to Control Your Brain. I wrote it for my kids. You know, it's very hard to preach in your own backyard. So I wrote the book thinking that, you know, one day when I'm not around that my kids would probably read it. And I still think that's what's going to happen, but um, uh, quite a few people who read it, you know, realized that it was probably more, you know, beneficial to more than just my kids. And uh, we've ended up selling, you know, quite a lot of those books. They've been downloaded, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of times. And um, I think it's a topic just most people are interested in, you know, how do, how do you control your brain and how do you solve problems with thinking? Yeah, so what is the answer to that question? How do you control your brain? Um, You've got to recognize what it is that causes you to, you know, focus on things. Pretty much, you know, in, in, in my belief, it's just internal communication. It's the way that you communicate to yourself. And most people, I would say, communicate in a reactive way. They're not aware of what they're doing, whereas, you know, getting control of your focus is about getting control of how you talk to yourself. You know, do you get up in the morning going, you know, you know what sucks about today? Or do you get up in the morning going, what's good about today? And that one question, you know, just shifts what you focus on. And I think it all comes back to that, how you feel is based on what you focus on. You know, uh, if you get up in the morning going, you know, i got a mate that says, he said it's a good day because he looks in the mirror and uh, when he breathes, there's frost on the window. <laughs> he knows he's still alive. <laughs> so, you know, and, and I think that's just coming back to, you know, him focusing his brain, which I think is the key to the whole thing. You know, and who wants to feel like, you know, feel bad, but, Unfortunately, most people seem to think that they have to feel bad about things all the time. I think it's so important the words that you choose to use. They frame your, yes. whole, your whole day. If you continuously using negative words to describe how you're feeling or what the day is like, then you're going to be in this negative state of mind the entire time. Whereas if you, if you focus on using positive words and saying things like, I haven't achieved that yet, then it means that you right. still have something to achieve, you know, so that's great. So you should try and use that positive language. Yeah, well, that's a, that's the, you know, it's revealing what's happening in the brain when you say that. If you, if you say, I can't do that, well, yeah, that's what your brain's focused on, but you just hit it on the head. Change it the way that you communicate to yourself, you know, I haven't achieved that yet, is a completely different meaning, and the meaning is what affects how they feel. 
But I, I have this philosophy that I'm really pushing with my kids and, you know, and, and they're pretty much on board with it. It's that, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you learn concept. And, you know, the moment people realize that you're either winning or learning, suddenly, you know, there's no failure occurring. You know, the doorways and the pathways open to many things. Can we speak for a minute about motorcycling? I think oh, yeah. I think you, we you, I think we share a happy that. place. <laughs> I know I know that you're a coach for the California Superbike School, and and that's something that I really still want to do. It's only come to South Africa once. We only had one a couple of years ago, and I really like when they when they come around again. I'm definitely going to sign up for that. What was your first motorcycle? I um, used to ride around the streets when I was 15 on a 250 Yamaha. Okay. So, what's uh, that? Uh, 45 years, 44 years ago, I was running around the streets without a license. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's how a lot of people start. <laughs> so, so what do you ride now? Uh, I've got a couple of bikes. I've got a, 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 I've got two BMWs, an R1200GS, uh, what's called a triple black, and I've got an S1000 RR superbike, nice. one that I put on the track and I race. And, and I also, you know, when I get to ride BMWs with the Californian Superbike School and Kawasaki's when I ride for them in New Zealand. Mm. Yeah, I just recently got a new bike two weeks ago. And yeah. but you know, you know, I like the Ducatis, okay? So that's my that's, that's my, right. my yeah. yeah, yeah, I like those. So I've got a brand new <laughs> seven nine seven monster. And wow. um, but it's been raining the entire week, so I can't take it out. Okay, so it's it's just you can't go out in the traffic when it's like that. Question for you. Yeah. What what is what do you like about motorcycle riding? What is it that gets you interested in running around on two wheels? What I like about it, and I've got a couple of things like that, is that you need to take your mind off the, your day to day worries and things that are you know frustrations. You need some some sort of release to be able to give your brain nothing to think about except what you're focusing on right now and i find right. i find motorcycling is like that okay so you can go for a ride and all you're focusing on for that hour or two hours that you're riding is just the road the road and the motorcycle and how it's handling and your brain is completely clear which i think is yeah. really really healthy place to be you don't want to be thinking about stuff all the time you want to have some sort of release you're not just thinking about work right. or relationships or whatever else. And I find there's a number of things that, are, that do that for me. So motorcycling is one of them. Um, I've recently completed my paragliding license, and paragliding is just like that. So you up there in the air and you're flying like a bird and you don't think about anything else except the air and the bird and the view, and it's amazing. And then the other thing that I do that's like that is yoga. You're just focusing on the movement and nothing else, okay, which is, I think, that's why I do it. So why do you do it? <laughs> well, it's, <laughs> it's funny you say that because it's, it's you, what you just described then, you know, I have a similar view, but what you described then was three things that have quite a distinct difference between them, you know, from yoga to paragliding and then across to motorcycling, but they all produce the same, have the same effect on you. They cause you to focus on one thing. The... That, that's exactly why I get sucked into it all the time. The moment, and people ask me, why do I get on the track? And, you know, and we're riding at 315 kilometers an hour. It's because it clears your brain of everything but one focal point. And um, secondly, you're a part of a machine. You know, like the bike 
and you have to work together. So now there's an art form where you blend with machine and, um, you know, that's what the whole Superbike School is about. It's, it's teaching that part component. So I think you and I have similar views of why we do it. I saw that you have a fun book out around um, making lists. So are you an avid list maker? I am. I, I make loads and loads of lists. And what is the, the best way to make lists? And do you have yep. a favorite list app? I do. Um, I think I wrote a book called um, Kill Your To-Do List Before It Kills You. Mm-hmm. And I called it that because... Uh, for two, for a couple of reasons. The, the primary reason being the way that you create the list is the most important part of it. It's not that, um, you know, you have a list or you want to get rid of a list. The best way I know of to make a list is to start at the result end. You know, what's the result you want to get or the outcome you want to get at the end of the week? Then listing those things that you need to do in order to get that outcome. And I think that's where a lot of people's lists come unstuck. They just write stuff down without thinking about how they all collectively create an outcome. And then they become overwhelmed. So that's the way I write lists. So yes, I do create them, but through that process. And the second thing, uh, your question was about the, my favorite app. I've got an app called Things on my phone, which just synchronizes across my, you know, iPad and computer. It's called Things because it's the things that you're going to do. It's a list app and it's super, super simple to use. Yeah. The one I use is called Wunderlist. And Wunderlist, like German. <laughs> yeah. And it's, um, it, it also gives you a lot of categories as to how you can make lists and, and you can tick stuff off. And it gives you a very satisfying little jingle when you tick stuff off the list. So I yeah. enjoy using that one. Um, satisfying jingle. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I don't know. Totally Only list makers would understand that, I guess. One thing on list.com, because a lot of people listening you know, would create lists. And I think, you know, people are very good at, you know, writing in to-do lists and things like that. The the real test of whether or not they're serving you is when you look at that list and ask this question, how many of the things at the top are all driven by deadlines? If that's the, the case, whether, you know, the five, 10 top things there are driven by deadlines and you're doing them because mentally you have to do it, then I think the process of developing that list is fra- is flawed. Because what that's saying is that everything you're doing primarily is driven by pain, you know, avoiding missing a deadline and avoiding getting something you don't want. So it's a little tip for people, you know, that, um, you know, when we're coaching people around that, exactly that, work out how you're going to create that list so you become more proactive than reactive in creating it. I like the way you're saying that your lists are sort of outcomes driven. You know what you want to get out of them and then what you need to do. And I think a lot of change yes. change projects or transformational projects should be the same. There should be an outcome you want to achieve. May, it could be right. by a specific time or it might just be defined by what it looks like in the end of it. And then we, just, right. we design the things that need to happen to get there. What are the steps that we have to take? And it could be a number of tool sets we use. It could be through our change management. It could be through using our business improvement tools. But we, yes. we have to be outcomes driven and then use the correct tools to get there. I yes, think. I agree, a hundred percent. A lot of the um, you see the you know action plans or action lists out of meetings tend not to be outcome oriented. They tend to be all action focused. But the problem with that is if everybody's thinking about you know all the tasks they've got to do, and you get a whole bunch of people running around frustrated and not necessarily that fulfilled. Because I think the real fulfillment comes from achieving something, not from doing something. 
So when you're coaching people, because you're also a coach, right? What are the top things that you get your coaches to focus on? So how do you, where do you start? Gee, that's a, that's a tough question. Uh, I think it depends very much on, you know, what it is we're coaching them with. I think most of the thing, most of the coaching I'm doing these days is around leadership. I would say the starting point, if I think about the way that I kick off, you know, any of the work we do with people, it's around getting them to be aware of what they currently do themselves that is not necessarily supportive of, you know, leading people to a new place. You know, I hear the words, because you can hear people, you know, it comes out of their language about how they're approaching it. They're, they're trapped in a solution mindset. So a big shift that we want to get people to make is, particularly at the leadership level, is pull away from solutions, be, be more capable in the area of focusing people on the right things, because people can solve stuff. You know, that, that's why we employ people. So that would be number one. Number two would be, you know, to recognize that, that there are no, no lazy people around. They're just uninspired people, you know, and they need to get cracking on inspiring people more as opposed to trying to push them and force them into doing stuff. So I think those two philosophies would be the big drivers behind my thinking. What's happened to me over the last couple of weeks, actually, is that I've been asked to mentor other women in the mining industry because that's the industry that I'm working in at the moment. And yeah. it's actually been quite, I've been thinking a lot about how do I do that? You know, how do I, what questions do I ask yeah. to just start them thinking about how do I then grow as a woman in the mining industry? Because right. yeah, I've worked in this industry for a, a, a long time and there's certain things that you have to learn to do. Mm. And I've been thinking a lot about what questions can I be asking these younger women who are coming up through the mining industry to motivate them and get them to think, be thinking about what mm. they could potentially achieve. And I think, yeah. so what, the way I start most of my mentoring conversations is I'll ask, okay, so what's on your mind? What is it that you want to be talking about? You know, where, where do you want to be going? So let's start with where do you want to end up and then let's see how we can get you there. Right. Yeah, let's begin with the end in mind. One more last question about organizational change. So what is the the one thing that we need to keep in mind with organizational change? What is the most important thing to focus on? This is going to depend who we're talking to. I I think people are over-focused on making changes. I think there's too many changes in most organizations that I've seen. Yeah, I've looked at a few hundred companies, you know, in detail over the last 20 years. Probably the first thing that jumps out to me is that every single one of them are trying to do too many changes. And they do those changes in many cases through the value stream without understanding the relationship of the changes. Whereas I think the smarter companies today realize that they have to stabilize in order to be able to make progressive change because it's the stability from a stable base that they can identify what to change and how to change it. And, you know, there's a few examples in Australia, I won't say which companies that have killed their change initiatives because they've made changes that in isolation, like, you know, the let's look at a mining company, for example, up at the mine, you know, they could get a bigger machine that moves more material and they could quantify the value that that generates. Yet, unless it gets through the value stream to the customer or when they sell it, there's no no value generated at all. It's actually a loss. And I think that's would be the number one issue in, you know, companies making change. Too many changes across the value stream, they're measured or quantified in isolation, you know, within their own silos. 
And when you put them all together, they don't add up to the change value that they think they get. There's this whole concept called change saturation. So if you think about right. all of the people um, who are affected by all of these various change initiatives, and they're coming yep. from various directions. There will be changes coming from HR, changes coming from business improvement, changes coming from the strategic teams. And they're all yes. impacting the same people, but in isolation almost. And some of them even collide with each other. Yeah. So you have this other concept called change collision, where you've got colliding instructions from various different stakeholders to the same people who have to go and implement the change. And in the yeah. end, it, it just doesn't add up to all of the benefit that the individual projects are said no. to, to deliver because they collide with each no. other and they saturate people and people go, this is too much. I can't actually deal with all of this change at the same time. And something's going to yeah. suffer. So I think it's best to focus on maybe one or two key things that need improving maybe. And then, yeah. and not to overload people with too much change because you just can't deal with it. No, that's right. H how much do you think that is created or driven by the, I don't know, you know, this, this perceived notion that, you know, a new leader or manager or managing director or whatever has to be seen to make, to be making changes? I think that's a big part of it because this person has put it, been put into a job because they come with a track record of having done something at a different company somewhere else um, or in a different department. And they want to yeah. bring that stuff that was, that helped them be successful at the, wherever they've come from into the new company. Yeah. And they feel that they then need to have to make changes to do that. Uh, right. without, without understanding the environment that the change is now going to be brought into and how it actually affects everybody around that. Cause it's not just one group of people. They're all being overloaded with the change from various directions. So you have to, have to understand. Yeah your stakeholders and, and, and how they're going to be affected by another additional change. Yeah, that's why I like your concept of let's think about where we want to get to and how is the initiative that I'm bringing into this organization going to contribute to where we want to get to? Or maybe we should finish some other stuff first before we try and improve and make it better, build a platform from <laughs> which we can continuously improve. Yeah. And maybe stabilize just for a little bit. We've been through, yeah. I don't know how many restructurings in the last couple of years. And you just never get yeah. to a point where you feel that we now know how everything works. When you get yeah. to that point, it all changes again. Now, he, he, you know, a funny thing is, and uh, I wrote about this in one of the books, when we looked at the psychology of change, it never ceases to amaze me how many managers and, you know, senior people unwittingly trying to do the right thing target the ultimate outcome. You know, they want the maximum performance out of a particular process or something not recognizing that in order to get to that point, every single variable that affects performance has to be fixed. Whereas organizations are better served by doing incremental changes and then locking those in so they stabilize for a little bit. That series of more incremental type changes is ultimately going to produce, you know, better performance and, you know, more revenue and value in the long run. I don't think Anybody brings a change initiative to the table from a bad place. I think they, everybody no. wants to do the best for the company. So, or for, yeah. or for themselves or for the people who report to them. I don't think they're bringing stuff in just for the sake of bringing it in. I think people genuinely believe no. that when they bring their change project to the table, it's going to make a difference. They're not coming from a bad place. It's just that we need to understand how everything interacts with each other. And understanding yes. the, the broader picture where, into which we are introducing yet another piece of change that we want people to adopt and use, which yep. makes it complicated. 
Yes. Yeah, without their buying. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And people just go, oh, no, this just whatever you're selling, I don't want one, okay, because it's it's just – Here we um, go again. Yeah, here we go again. <laughs> Flavor of the yeah. month, <laughs> all of that. Yeah. We've spoken about a whole number of topics. Is yeah. there anything else in preparing for this podcast that you'd like to leave our listeners with? If I'm talking to individual people, I'd always say this, you know, recognize that the hardest person to change is yourself. And once you understand how to connect things that you should be doing to your own values, then you become, you know, master of yourself. And that underpins mastery of others. And I think, you know, change really begins at home. So, you know, don't always look outside. If, if you're struggling to get change, it may be because you don't fully understand how to change yourself, perhaps. So hopefully that adds value to the individual. If, you, if you're thinking about bringing some sort of change into the organization, you have to understand yeah. for each person who's going to be affected by that change, what's yes. in it for that person? You know, what's in it for yes. me? Why should I convince that person to accept and acknowledge and adopt my change and link it to that person's values as well? Otherwise, it's just never yeah. going to flow. They're just going to keep resisting it. Where can people find out more about you and your books and get to know you better? I think the best place, you know, um, you know, obviously I'm on social media and that type of thing, but I tend to be pretty poor communicator on those, very random. The, the, probably the best way would be my personal website, georgeleeside.com, because anything that we're doing is going to be there. The new book that's coming out in June will be there. And, uh, you know, it's a combination of both personal and professional stuff. So, you know, I do my motorbike stuff through there as well, and uh, it's probably the best one, georgeleeside.com. George, thanks very much for being on the podcast today. It's been lovely speaking to you. Uh, likewise, and thank you for the opportunity, Petro. On Change is recorded at Solid Gold Studios. For more information about the podcast and to listen to previous episodes, go to solidgoldstudios.co.za forward slash unchange. Here you will also find show notes for this episode and more information about my guest. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>